Hello, and welcome back to the fireside with me, Jim. I'm really happy you decided to join me again today for another toasted tale. If, like me, you enjoy hearing stories, then you've come to the right place. I think there are interesting stories in every subject, just waiting to be found and shared. In this podcast, we're going to take a random subject and use it as a seed to do some research for one short hour. And I will do my best to find an interesting story that we can all enjoy. So let's bring in the Wheel of Fortune style spinner and find out what today's subject will be. Okay, so today it's landed on Chase Distillery. Right, just for clarity, as I always like to say, I'm no expert on Chase Distillery, I haven't worked for them, and I really don't know much about them at the moment. I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy who likes finding interesting stories and learning some some things along the way. So, I'm going to go away and do an hour's research and see what stories I can discover. So get comfortable, and I'll speak to you shortly. Thank you for your patience. So, while looking into Chase Distilleries, I was able to find a lot of interesting stuff. First, I want to talk about bravery. And more specifically, the bravery to take on a difficult challenge. As someone who doesn't come from this background, or upbringing. The idea of taking over a family business is a tricky one. On one hand, you've been possibly groomed from a very young age to be the perfect candidate to take on the mantle of the small business, the farm, whatever it is. But on the other hand, you are taking something that's been in the family for possibly generations. You're gonna have at least your mum or dad, watching what you're doing, seeing how you stack up to what they did. And if you believe spiritually that ancestors could be watching you, then my goodness, you got that as well, you got that weight. Your grandparents, great-grandparents, etc, etc. That's quite a lot. You've got to have a certain constitution to be able to be able to carry that around with you. And so... The main character in our story today, a man named William Chase, was brought up on his family farm in Herefordshire, England. And this farm was a potato farm. And so at 20 years old, William takes the very brave step of buying the family farm from his father, which in itself is brave, and he takes a loan out, £200,000 at 20, and buys the farm. Quick side note, I look back to when I was 20, and I very much doubt I could have persuaded a bank manager to loan me that sort of money. My goodness, the man must have the gift of the gab to be able to get that. But, so at 20 years old, business owner, family business owner, the weight of that on the shoulders, and Like any commodity, potatoes rise and falls. The price of them can increase and decrease. So 
You can never guarantee, you can have a good idea with experience about how much a crop's gonna sell for, and how much your overhead and your expenses is gonna cost every year, but it's gonna rise and fall, like anything. And for 12 years, from 20 to 32, he, he makes it work. As a farmer, as a potato farmer, he makes enough money to keep going. Now in 1992, at the family farm, there was a disaster harvest. Apparently the rains were so bad that there was no way to harvest any of the crops. They had to watch the potatoes rot in the field. The yearly income of the farm, gone. At 32, the business collapses. The farm goes bankrupt. Just imagine that, your family farm. Just imagine the, the bloody nose that must have felt for William, sitting around the dinner table with the parents. The awkward silence. Just imagine telling them, Hi, Mum and Dad. You know the farm that you've been working all your life? It's gone. We don't have the money to keep it open. Imagine that oppressive feeling. Guilt, maybe? Shame? Wow. That'll be heavy. Now, in his own words, uh, he escaped to Australia for a few months. You probably need it after, after that sort of thing. And miraculously, at 32, was able to persuade someone to borrow more money. To get more money to buy the farm back. Which I can understand, my goodness, if it's a family farm, you're not going to let it go without a fight. So yeah, takes on more money. Gets the farm back. And maybe a bit wiser now, maybe he's learnt a few tricks along the way. So, as any good business person does, he shifts, he readjusts, plants his feet a little bit differently, maybe a bit more firmly, and becomes a potato broker. Now, I don't know whether that's the technical term, but I like the idea of people on a Wall Street-style trading floor selling potatoes here, courgettes, carrots, you know. So, he gets into the market of selling potatoes from other sellers to supermarkets, effectively becoming the middleman. I think he was still making his own potatoes as well, but he also diversified and became a seller to the supermarkets, which in his mind at the time was a wise thing to do. Now, as you can imagine, there are frustrations in all lines of work. Now, the thing that William Chase found very frustrating about this was that he would be going to the supermarkets with his potatoes and half of them would come back, saying, oh, sorry, these are not aesthetically pleasing enough for us. We cannot put these on the shelf. Our customers will not buy. So we will not buy. You can only imagine this is this is the money. This is, this is the money that uh, he needs to earn. And his crops are going to waste. I like to imagine that there are specific people in these supermarkets where their sole like position is to check the vegetables that they look nice enough that they are pretty enough aesthetically pleasing enough to be sold to our clients and whether that is an important thing for supermarkets is one thing but it's obviously not very helpful for a potato seller for a broker of potatoes so what does a young, business-minded potato farmer do? Well, you, you shift again, don't you? you? You 
take the punches from one angle and then you, you shift your feet and you, you get back at it. So, there is a crisp brand called Kettle Chips who are using non-perfect potatoes to make crisps. High-end crisps. And William Chase looks at that and goes, well, I've got a lot of potatoes here. Non-perfect potatoes as classified by the supermarkets. What am I going to do? Well, you know, I don't know how to make crisps, but I bet I give it a go. So he gets on the phone, calls up a number of UK crisp makers. Hello, can I please come round your facility? I'd love to know how you make crisps. And and I can understand why they do this, but they kind of look at him and go, get out of here, you know. No, you're not coming. You're not coming around here. Plus, who are you? And and also, we don't really want any more competition on the crisp. It's already quite a saturated market. You know, you don't really want more competitors, and you don't want to be the the manufacturer who gives the idea to your competitor. Okay, fine. So what does he do? He goes to the U.S. to a number of facilities there, and. He's able to get a few visits under his belt in some American crisp manufacturers and, and gets the idea of what to do. And so on the family farm, when he comes back to the UK, he buys the equipment he needs and starts production of a crisp brand called Tyrrells. And Tyrrells became very popular. But what I want to talk about quickly is, well, there's something about people who can you know, differentiate, like, real nose and kind of fake nose, if that makes sense. Let me explain that. There are some things in life that if you say no to, if a police officer says, no, you can't do that, and what you're trying to do is illegal, and they're trying to stop you doing that, then, no, you can't do that. But then there are other times where you'll be told no, like in the example of, oh no, you can't come around here and look at our crisp manufacturing. And... Even though they've been told no, they almost don't hear it. They almost, well, you know, I'm not going to let that stand in my way. That's not a brick wall. That's just a door that has been locked to me, but there are other doors. And history and the history of great people has been, is filled with people who have been told no. Then it's their ability to readjust and go again and find a way almost tenaciously, which has sometimes created the greatest of things. Case in point, nice crisps. And so, the money was rolling in. The crisp business was booming. And shops were selling it, supermarkets were shelving these crisps, and they were making a lot of money for everyone involved. Now, William, being the sort of man he is, did not want to sell to certain people. For example, Tesco, the biggest supermarket chain in the UK, in William's mind, was not to be sold to. He didn't like how the supermarket giant pressured its farmers to lowering prices. Apparently, potato politics is a real thing. And coming from that background as a potato farmer, first, potato broker, second, now a crisp maker, William Chase decided this was a battle that he wanted to take, and it brought Tyrrells head-to-head -head with Tesco. Now, if you've got a product that's selling really well in the market, and your competitors are making money off it, then the smart businessman will find a way of getting that product so you can get in on the action, get a piece of the pie. So Tesco's escalated the situation, 
when they started buying Tyrrell's crisps on the side, without William's knowledge. And of course this created even more drama. I guess it justified William's opinion of the company. Not only do you pressure your farmers, but you're also willing to buy products from the backside without the consent of the producer. And so, of course, Tyrrells and William Chase demanded that they stop selling their crisps. And Tesco's, being the massive company they are, refused. And so a media campaign starts. This is another situation where you've got to look at the personality of William Chase. He didn't back down. He starts a media campaign against them. He gets himself on radio, BBC Radio 4 and starts slating Tesco and really bringing it into the the eye of the people. And so, you know, what's worse for a big company? They say that any publicity is good publicity, but that really isn't the case. If you're seen as this company that's taking advantage of a small English crisp manufacturer. And so finally, Tesco's back down, which is great win for Tyrrells. Once again, you've got to wonder about the power of the personality of the man who does not back down, never say never, doesn't take no for an answer in business. So that victory behind them, money coming in, what's the thing that you do next? You expand, you want to improve the money, the revenue, the everything. So what does William do? He does what he's done before. He takes out some loans, go to the, goes to the bank to expand the operation and really bring Tyrrells into its next stage. But the bank, being the bank, they worry. They are like, well, okay, Mr. Chase, we will absolutely loan you the money, but we need you to bring in a management team to just make sure that everything's good, that the bank balance stays healthy, and that you remain profitable. We can protect our money. Now, I'm sure a lot of businesses have to go through this. If you're going to borrow someone else's money, a bank's money, then you're kind of asking for their input on how to continue. Now, I think this is one of the things that William Chase looks back on with regret, in a sense, because while before he was the sole owner, but also he put in his input to the whole business. Now he had these this management team appointed by the bank who was disrupting things and putting their ideas into how the business should be run and everything like that. And that can be probably, I can imagine, very difficult for someone who's built this business himself. And so he went from being totally involved to managers making meetings about meetings and distractions to him and so in 2008 what feels in the research at least like a messy divorce William sold Tyrrells to a private capital equity business for 40 million and even if that was a painful loss of his baby you've got to imagine that 40 million does make it a lot easier and so, from bankruptcy to millionaire status, that's quite a transformation. It's quite a success story. 
proves that you can do anything to anyone on looking. And then what do you do after that? You know, if money isn't a factor, you've got 40 million pounds now. Well, what does a potato man do? But find more ways to make money from this brown gold. The potatoes in the fire. He's still got a farm. Tyrrell's farm. Well. There are a lot of big players in alcohol. It's quite a popular thing. I don't know if you've realized that, but a lot of people around the, around the world like drinking alcohol. And potatoes can make some really good vodka. It's how all of the ones, the big manufacturers make their vodka, and so William Chase does just that. He makes a vodka distillery in the UK, the only potato-based vodka producer in England, and starts making high-quality alcohol to take on the giants, the massive producers who, who I don't want to say flood the market, but dominate the market. And so, 2008, he buys the distillation system with the money that he earned from his previous business, and Chase Distillery is born. And he starts with vodka, as I said, to Chase Vodka. And from there, it yeah, he makes gin now as well. There are other alcohols that he makes. He is diversified from there. And to show kind of how successful this has been, in 2010, it won the Best Vodka Award at the San Francisco World Spirit Competition, which is pretty good for two years, only two years of manufacturing. And also, even though William himself has admitted that the vodka business isn't as profitable as the crisp business, it's become a labor of love. It's one of those things where his public relations strength, his personality, can really come to the front, he can travel around the world selling his alcohol, making those meeting and greeting events, and really pushing it forward, and until this day it's still very successful. And that is the story of, of Chase Distillery, the ups and downs of the potato business with William Chase, where he went from a potato farmer, to then owning his own crisp company, and then becoming an award-winning vodka producer. I want to add a footnote onto the story we've just told. And it's about refining and adding value. That may sound dull, but actually it's one of the things that I find really quite interesting. In Chase distilleries, and with particular William Chase, he found a way of turning a raw resource that he had in this case, potatoes, and making them more than what they originally were. And that ended up being, at one point, crisps, and after that, vodka. Each costing a lot more to the consumer and bringing a lot more money for Chase than normal potatoes. Now, there are many resources out there that you can do this with. For example, you could turn iron into steel and that's worth more than iron, and then you can turn the steel bar into a tool, and then that tool becomes a lot more than iron and the bar. If you want to get really fancy, you can turn a steel into a tiny, intricate tool for some medical machine, which can run up into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. There are ways of making things more valuable. 
And that's by refining them. Now, the Oxford Dictionary definition of refining is elegant and cultured in appearance, manner, or taste, and developed or improved so as to be precise or subtle. I think that's really good, and it's quite a hard thing to define what is refined, but we all know if we see something that's refined. We can identify someone who looks like they've got some... They look like they've got their stuff together. They've got some refinedness to them. Maybe the way they walk, the way they dress themselves, the way they put themselves across. Being refined adds value. You can become more valuable or make a more valuable product if you, if it gets manufactured in a way which adds more value to society or the market. And what's amazing is as a human being, we are also a raw material. When we're really young, we're quite useless, really. We haven't got too much to offer, apart from our family, who probably thinks we're worth keeping around. <laughs> but as we get older, we learn skills and we learn tricks and techniques of how to exist in the world, which makes us more valuable. And we become a more refined human being. We get skills, we get expertise, mastery. And everyone's capable of this in some way. And as I was doing research for William Chase and Chase Distillery, I was just, it struck me that, oh my goodness, someone finding value in potatoes and making them vodka is the same as a human being applying themselves and becoming more intelligent or skilled in a, another area. And so I just wanted to bring that up. I just thought it was, it just hit me and I thought, hmm, if entrepreneurs out there or workers out there try and add value to their workplaces and their business and surely they can add value to themselves and become more refined by developing improving so as to become more precise subtle elegant and cultured thank you Wow, thank you so much for spending your time with me listening to this podcast. I wasn't sure where Chase Distillery was going to take us when it came up to the random subject today, but I'm really happy about learning a bit more about this British drinks maker. I'm going to be here every Tuesday and Thursday, and so if you'd like to join me again for another story around the fireside, I'll be back then. Your company would be, of course, greatly welcomed. I hope you all have a lovely rest of day. And I will speak to you all again soon for another Toasted Tale by the Fireside. <laughs>